Welcome back to CarmelCast, where we are talking this season all about the Carmelite charism. My name is Father Pier Giorgio of Christ the King, and I'm joined by Brother John Mary of Jesus Crucified. And CarmelCast is a production of the Institute of Carmelite Studies Publications. You can visit us online at icspublications.org. Now, ICS Publications is the English language publishing house of the Discalced Carmelite Order. And on our website, you can find English translations, contemporary English translations of the writings of the Carmelite saints, including St. Teresa of Avila, who we'll be talking about today, St. John of the Cross, St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, and St. Edith Stein, or St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, as she is known also. And during our season, as it's airing uh, during the month of November and December of 2021, you'll find in the description of these episodes, various promotions, usually having something to do with the interviews that we're doing in the second half of all of these episodes. And we ask a very important question to those who are interviewing, and that is, what Carmelite books would you recommend? And so we're doing our best to offer discounts on those books when they are available and in stock. So be sure to check out our website. Again, that's www.icspublications.org. Today on our episode, we're talking all about uh, something that was very dear to the heart of St. Teresa of Avila, and that is why we shouldn't become discouraged in the midst of our sin. In particular, we shouldn't be discouraged with our prayer and offering time for prayer in the midst of sin. And I think this ultimately comes from a few different avenues. You know, we can feel that we're experiencing setbacks in our spiritual life or in the moral life. Um, and if we don't deal with these setbacks or we don't understand these setbacks appropriately, they can trick us or we can, as a result of being discouraged or feeling shame, we can turn away from prayer, um, which causes us to turn away from seeking a relationship with God. So we're basically shooing away the very means of returning to a relationship of grace. And in the midst of our sin, it's very important to find our way back. And prayer is ultimately our way back. And this is what St. Teresa is talking about in the section that we want to talk about today. Yeah, I love the fact that in the this section, I mean, Teresa deals with this in a very personal level with this this concept of discouragement and prayer uh, due to sin and other things. And so it's great that even before kind of our understanding of modern psychology, here we have St. Teresa writing uh, and, and sharing about her firsthand experience and struggle with this and then how she was able to overcome the difficulties. Yeah, and the fact that she shares her experience is a help to us because she is a doctor of the church. <laughs> yes. And if there's hope for her, there's hope for us. Uh, so I think that that's a, she's an excellent witness in regard to keeping and maintaining a relationship with God through prayer, even when we struggle. Now, I think there's like a whole gamut of situations that might lead a person uh, to give up on prayer. And the three, I think, main ones is habitual sin. So when we're, when we're kind of stuck in a cycle of habitual sin, whether it be uh, grave sin or venial sin, um, when another way that we may be discouraged or we may be tempted to give up on prayer is when there's an apparent lack of progress in the spiritual life. And I think the final way in which we can become discouraged is that when our 
the time that we spend in prayer, the period of time that we dedicate to prayer when that becomes difficult or distracted or laborious. Now, today we're going to kind of more focus on sin and how sin and discouragement are related. If you're interested in the other two kind of ways in which people might be tempted to give up on prayer, we do talk about this in our first season. Um, And in particular, if you're looking for some insight into um, what it might mean if you see kind of an apparent apparent lack of progress in your spiritual life, uh, episode two of season one is particularly helpful on that, on modes of prayer. Um, and then three and f- episode three and four related as well. And then when prayer is difficult or distracted or laborious, you may turn to episode five of uh, our first season, which is titled Difficulties in Prayer. So two kind of plugs there for earlier episodes that we've done kind of on those topics. But today we really want to focus more on sin and sin as discouragement. So speaking of sin and temptations, St. Teresa of Jesus was convinced that perseverance in prayer is ultimately the solution to sin and temptation. And she writes in chapter 8 of the book of her life, If the soul perseveres in prayer in the midst of the sins, temptations, and failures of a thousand kinds that the devil places in its path, in the end I hold certain the Lord will draw it forth to the harbor of salvation, as now it seems he did for me. So she's speaking from her own experience, right, in this, that that in the midst of all of her temptations, in the midst of all of her stressors in daily life and her failures of a thousand kinds, she writes, uh, that the devil placed in her path, that prayer for her was ultimately that that safe harbor for her. Yeah, it's interesting how as um, we, we, I don't know if it's just human nature, we tend to think that uh, we can't go to God until we're perfect, until we have things figured out. When it's the the going to God, the, the going to God in prayer, meeting with Jesus that really brings, is the answer then to, um, it's the other way around. And I think we can see that so clearly in the Gospels, especially um, Jesus didn't call the perfect. He called these kind of shabby men, uh, very imperfect to, to be his disciples. And, and it was through that relationship with him that they were perfected and, and brought to holiness. And that's the same thing for us, for us is we don't need to wait till we reach a point of freedom from sin before we go to God in prayer, but rather it's by going to God in prayer that he will free us from our sins. So prayer has ultimately, and this is what St. Teresa knew and understood and what she shared with the church was that prayer has an, an incredible effect on us. Um, and the effect that it has on us is that it stirs our hearts towards love of God. And so in the midst of love, we then see how we have failed. Um, we have failed this love that we've received. And because of that, our hearts are then stirred to contrition. And then true or perfect contrition, this is what ultimately remits us of our, of our venial sin. Uh, so much to the point that mental prayer as an avenue of grace and the avenue through which we, we kind of make and feel contrition for our sins is an avenue for the remission of our venial sins because it leads us to perfect contrition, which is the necessary means of being forgiven of those venial sins. And so it's interesting because it's in this way that prayer is actually a remedy for sin. Yes. And yeah, that's ex- 
that that's I think it's such a, an important point to remember because um, yeah, like we said, the temptation. And this is what Teresa experienced in her own life. The the temptation is to think, um, oh, I'm in, I'm imperfect. Uh, I've fallen, and therefore I can't go to God. And but Teresa is so clear that this is really the trick of the trick of the evil one, the trick of the devil. Uh, so he can win twice. Not only does he win in our our sinning, but then he wins in our re- failure then to return and cling even more so to God. And this is why like St. Paul talks about how when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, which can seem kind of strange to us, but it's this reality that um, God can transform the evil of sin into something that causes us to cling to him even more. Um, and so brings about a greater good through the evil that we've chosen. Mm-hmm. Or in the words of St. Therese of Lisieux, she says, she talks about sin as the very avenue for God's mercy. And mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like those happy faults that, that cause us to depend on him more fully because it's recognition that we can't do it on our own. Um, so to be confident in, in his mercy, uh, ultimately, which is a great lesson of, of St. Therese, even in the case of mortal sin, uh, for, for matters that are more, that are more, um, grave in nature, uh, the contrition that is a result of our prayer and is a result of desiring to have a, a more full relationship with God, this contrition is what's going to lead us ultimately to seek the absolution that we need in the form of a sacramental confession. And I think too that you know if prayer and mortal sin are incompatible, then we should ultimately be, be seeing prayer as a means to rid ourselves of our attachments to to grave matter and, you know, not just mortal sin and prayer being incompatible, but sin in general and prayer incompatible. And so, you know, in the battle of God versus Satan, Jesus being the victor over sin and death, well, who better to seek and to, and to, yeah, who better to seek to strive, uh, to help us to strive to maintain a relationship with the, the very victor of the battle uh, that we're fighting. And so that's why, you know, prayer is so essential uh, in the moral life. Could you, could you clarify what you said there about um, just about prayer, sin and prayer being incompatible? Yeah, so the idea of prayer and mortal sin being incompatible doesn't mean that if I'm in the state of mortal sin or even in the state of venial sin, that means that I can't pray. Rather, it means if I go to prayer, uh, with my sinful self, then ultimately God is going to, like the two cannot stand together, right? And so ultimately one is going to be expelled. And because God is the stronger of those forces, it's going to be the sin that is ex- ultimately expelled. And to have trust that God being the victor of the battle over sin and death is going to be Who's going to come out on top in sort of like this wrestling ring of 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 sin versus Jesus in our lives? Right. If I if I keep and rem, if I keep praying and remain faithful to prayer, then um, either I'll stop praying or I'll stop sinning. One of those, in the long run, is going to be the result of this clinging to Jesus. And um, yeah, so when we remain faithful to prayer, remain clinging to Him, then uh, He will. And eventually, in in his provident timing, uh, he will conquer the sin in our lives. Yeah, and this was something that I, the Teresa, Saint Teresa herself, lived through. Right? She, 
you know, for, she says for 20, you know, 20 plus years of her life, or maybe for an extended period of her life, many years, she felt that she had, you know, she was commanded by her spiritual director to continue praying, which she took very seriously because, you know, in her own, um, maybe in her, in her own lack of confidence in what she was doing, being the right thing, the spiritual director helped her and confirmed in her that yes, prayer is good. You know, she kind of was living two lives and, but it, ultimately she, she talks about how it was like, it was almost like a punishment for her. And it, it led her to penance and to grieve over her sins because she was seeing simultaneously how broken she was. And then on the other hand, how good God was in, to her and how much that he loved her. Yeah, I think that's so essential is keeping both of those um, aspects in mind, not only our sinfulness, but but God's love and mercy. Because if uh, we overemphasize the sinfulness, then that that's, will lead to this discouragement. Um, if we ignore us, nor ignore our sinfulness, that's not healthy either. Um, there needs to be this balance that our our sinfulness, our weakness, should cause us uh, to turn even more to God's love and mercy. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's ultimately going to be the remedy for us. She says in the book of her life, in chapter eight, again, she says it is not it is that in spite of any wrong they who practice prayer do, they must not abandon prayer, since it is the means by which they can remedy the situation. And to remedy and to remedy it without prayer would be much more difficult. May the devil not tempt them the way he did me to give up prayer out of humility. Hmm. And so here's here's you know uh, she gives us in this quote actually one kind of example of why we tend to avoid prayer when we're discouraged by our sinfulness. Um, she talks about the idea of false humility, and this was ultimately the reason she gives for herself that she um, gave up prayer at one point in her life. And because she felt it was a sense of out of humility, she didn't want to offend God being a sinner, you know, coming to him and bothering her with her needs. Right. Mm. Uh, And she says in chapter seven of the book of her life, this was the most terrible trick the devil could play on me under the guise of humility that seeing myself so corrupted, I began to fear the practice of prayer. It seemed to me that since in being wicked, I was among the worst. It was better to go the way of the many to recite what I was obliged to vocally and not practice mental prayer and so much intimacy with God for I merited to be with the devils. And here she's speaking of mental prayer and specifically, and for her and for St. Teresa, mental prayer is, is that friendship relationship with God that we spoke about last week. Yeah. I think a lot of this comes down to our, um, our image of God, who God is and, and how we approach him. Um, because I think if we, if we view God as this, um, demanding sort of Lord, um, we can be, I think it is humility not to approach him because of our littleness. Whereas like one thing that Therese talks about so much is in, in her great confidence then is rather we should be almost excited to run to our father in order to tell him of our faults, of our wrongdoings. Because in some way it it causes him not to to love us less, but rather to love us more for um, for our like our openness and willingness to reveal that part of ourselves to him. So I think another thing that for us we a way in which we tend to avoid prayer uh, as a result of our sinfulness is shame. 
Um, and, and this is something that St. Teresa experienced as well. She talks about this at the very beginning of this passage that we're referring to, which is chapter 7 and 8 of the book of her life. She says, Since I thus began to go from past, pastime to pastime, from vanity to vanity, from one occasion to another, to place myself so often in very serious occasions, and to allow my soul to become so spoiled by so many vanities, I was then ashamed to return to the search of God by means of a friendship as special as, as is that found in the intimate exchange of prayer. So it's this idea that because I've, I've just spent the last, you know, days of the week going from vain thing to vain thing, um, from, from something aside from God to another thing that then I no longer deserve this relationship that, that is so good and that is so beautiful and is, is so intimate. I don't deserve that, so therefore I'm not going to. I'm not going to give myself. Um, I'm not going to give myself that good. Mm. And I think the yep. danger there is that 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 we don't give it to ourselves. <laughs> it's God who's giving it to uh, to us, and who are we to say that we don't deserve it? Yeah, yeah. We can become like uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, like hiding from God, or like covering up our our. Uh, our weakness and vulnerability rather than, uh, yeah, out of this sense of shame rather than running, running to him. Yeah. So I think ultimately um, something that St. Teresa experienced in all of this, um, she was sort of set free by this, by being affirmed, like we mentioned in, by her spiritual director in continuing to practice mental prayer in her life. Um, And it wasn't easy for her. And so we shouldn't think that it's going to be, easy for us either. You know, this holding, having two masters, I guess that might be a good way to describe it. Having two masters is, is it, it's not, doesn't feel good. <laughs> you know, it's because, because of that idea of guilt and shame that we experience. Um, but it's so necessary uh, because ultimately, you know, it should feel like a battle sometimes because it is a battle. It's a battle that God is fighting within us. Um, and, but we have to cooperate with the one who we know is ultimately going to be the victor because he's already conquered sin and death on the cross. Yeah, and it's uncomfortable because for that very sake that he is in that time of prayer, purging us, cleansing us, uh, purifying us of that, that other Lord that, that we serve. And so that's not always a comfortable experience, but um, it's, it's necessary and it's for our ultimate good. Yeah. Yeah, and so just to wrap up this, this little conversation, um, what so Saint Teresa speaks in particular of two, I don't know, strategies or solutions for those who are struggling between being devoted to prayer and having attachment to sin or inordinate affections or imperfections, be they be they venial or grave. Uh, the first one, the famous the famous solution of Saint Teresa, which is determination. Right, when you fail, get up again and try again. Right. And sometimes I think, you know, this is, this can be a great, um, help for people to say, even, especially with regard to habitual sin, if, if we make the, a promise to God in our prayer that, you know, I, f- I failed again, uh, and I might, I might fail again in the future, but I'm never going to give up trying. I'm never going to give up trying to strive for a good relationship with, with God and to seek a right relationship with God. And I think, us praying that um, it has an effect on us in the sense that 
what it's determination. It's an act of determination. It's an act of faith that God is walking with us through the midst of all this. And that's why I think, I don't know, determination is so important for Teresa. And I think it's so important for us as well. And the, the alternative is despair, which is really the, probably the greatest victory of the devil, because not only do we fall, but it's that we fall and, and then we, we aren't inspired then to, to return. So that's really like his the, the ultimate victory then of the the devil would be uh, great grave despair. Yeah, to the to the extent that we never we never get up again. Yeah. Um, and and then the second thing that that Saint Teresa uh, enjoins on us to help us in the battle against sin in our lives is good spiritual friendships. Um, and. She says, this is a quote from her in in chapter seven. She says, spiritual friendship is so extremely important for souls, not yet fortified in virtue. Since they have so many opponents and friends to incite them to evil, I don't know how to urge it enough. So it's this idea, there's, there's plenty of people and forces out there in the world that are trying to, you know, get you to despair and get you to not seek um, spiritual maturity and growing in virtue that we need people in our lives who are going to help us in that regard and to promote us and to, and to support us and, and to, and to be that rock for us, uh, in a real way. Yeah. And I think Teresa experienced that on many different levels. Um, the one we probably hear about most often in her writing is through, uh, spiritual directors or confessors. Those were, uh, some of her close spiritual friendships that encouraged her, um, in her pursuit of holiness. But then apart from that, we also hear about her family, um, I mean, she talks in chapter seven about the huge impact that her father had on her um, through this sort of spiritual friendship she had with her father uh, to, to, to return to prayer after giving it up. And then also she had uh, close friendships with uh, other friends, like uh, other sisters in her community and other lay people as well. Yeah. Well, so speaking of friends of Jesus, <laughs> I had the distinct pleasure and honor of speaking uh, earlier this week with the great, one of the great friends of Jesus, the, the sisters, the Carmelite sisters of the most sacred heart of Jesus of Los Angeles. And uh, in particular, I spoke with Sister Regina Marie uh, about her vocation, about her, about the Carmelite sisters of, of um, Los Angeles, an active um, congregation of Carmelite sisters and what they do and how they live the Carmelite charism as friends of Jesus and devoted to prayer. Uh, so when we come back from a short five second little interlude, we will hear from Sister Regina Marie. So please stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm joined by Sister Regina Marie of the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles. Sister, thank you so much for joining us and being interviewed today. I was really looking forward to this. Wonderful. Well, let's just get right started. Can you introduce yourself for us, where you're from and uh, where you live and kind of a little bit about how you became a sister? I'd love to do that. I was born in Detroit and my family moved We're also Southern, so I've got Southern blood in me, Louisiana, Mississippi. I am a truck driver's daughter, and I still have truck driver um, habits in me. Uh, I live right now, well, I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, probably 40 miles out of Los Angeles. 
I met the Carmelite sisters when I was in seventh grade, and like this is a little bit of confession, but the reason I went to the retreat was because the way the, the my classmates described it, I, I didn't know what a retreat was. Like, I didn't know. So they, the way they described it, I thought I was going to a Catholic slumber party. And <laughs> I behaved accordingly. And the following year when they asked me, to, the, not the sisters, but the girls asked me if I'd like to go back and make another retreat. I, yeah, why not? That was really fun. And I went with the same spirit. And when I walked into the library, the sister, now mind you, our retreat house serves an average of 6,000 retreatants a year. But she wow. saw me and she took one look at me and walked over and said, this year you will cooperate. <laughs> sister, I chill, what is your problem? But I, I really behaved in the same way. I was just, I was immature. I was not looking for God. I was completely clueless. And the beauty of it is he comes to meet us where we are. Mm -hmm. We don't Absolutely. have to be someplace holy and he's going to now reveal himself. He comes to us where we are. And the sisters had us on the floor. We were uh, all, what, 13-year-olds, 8th grade? Probably about 50, 60 girls. And this, this was in the late 60s. So the novices were sitting on chairs and we were sitting on the carpet and they were with the guitars. And their sole purpose was to get us tired and relaxed so that we would go to bed so they could go to bed because they were going to get up <laughs> early. And I was goofing around on the floor, was not paying attention. And if this is late 60s, we were not singing praise and worship. We were singing uh, folk songs. Where have all the flowers gone? You know, uh, just good, wholesome folk songs. And I had an experience of God. And I knew that I was, I, I was held, uh, that, that he could see everything about me, through me, anything that affected me, he knew all of it. And he desired me. I, I, don't, I don't know how long this lasted. I was completely oblivious of my surroundings. And I, I, at that age of my development, I was very used to consulting my mother for everything. Mom, does this look good? I, you know, does this match? Do you think? Did you like that guy? You know, whatever. I was just consulting my mom all the time, as as a thirteen year old. And this, with this approach of love, I knew that I was. I needed to give a response. And it never. I didn't have an ounce of hesitation. Yes. And the minute I said, yes, I want this, this love, this, this being held, this being known and being seen. With that, yes, I knew intuitively it meant Carmel. I didn't know what Carmel meant, but I knew it was those nuns and whatever they're doing, that's going to be me someday. And I, when I kind of became aware of my surroundings, I'm still a 14, 13 year old, because I am bawling. And my first cognizant thought was, oh, I hope my friends don't see me like this. Mm -hmm. like, still a kid. And yet the irony of it, no one mentioned it, no one saw me. And I slipped upstairs and I wept during the night with just release, with just peace. And when I woke up the next morning, 
I was free and I was grounded. That was 13 years old. And I did. I entered uh, when I was 20, and I tried to bargain out of out of out of the vocation many times. But I found that when I started to bargain out, I always had to work hard. And when I was trusting and surrendering, it fit. Everything came easily. It came, it came so much more naturally to who I really am. It's amazing the way that when God changes our lives, it's, it's, I mean, you can't go back from that. And um, so it sounds like God changed your life at 13. And you, I, I couldn't deny it. I could never, I, I didn't deny it then. I could, I, I, I never doubted that it was God, even though I tried to bargain out. It's it has it's still living. So, could you give us a little bit of a, a history of of the Carmelite Sisters? How did they get started? It's fascinating, and I think it's a, it's a witness and a word for today, because our foundress, um, her name was Maria Luisa Josefa de la Pena, from Mexico, and as a young girl she wanted to be a sister. And her father, which was practice at the time, her father arranged a marriage for her. And Maria Luisa, they called her Luisita. Luisita saw that as the will of God. Oh, my heart told me that I wanted to be, that I was called to be a sister, but I must be misunderstanding because Papa arrange the marriage, this must be the will of God. So she fully entered into the marriage, and he was twice her age. Luisita was 15, and Dr. Rojas was um, 30, and he was a physician. And they, they grew to love each other. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a, a real marriage. And they were childless. And it was Dr. Rojas that said, Luisita, you know why, we, why the Lord has not given us children? Is that he has already given us children. Look at the orphans on the street. So he was a physician and he turned down a lucrative offer because if he, he went into Guadalajara, to take the position, he would leave the, the town, Alto Tenilco, where they were, without any medical assistance. And Luisita would go house to house to encourage people to trust her husband. And they bought a little house, and they created a little hospital. And then that was uh, growing and, and functioning and serving. Then they built or got another little house for the children that were on the streets and that began their orphanage. They were married for 14 years. People from the parish, was they were contributing and helping and volunteering. And after 14 years of marriage, uh, her husband contracted a disease. And it was actually at the beginning of Lent when he was diagnosed and he was a physician and he knew what way it was going. And Luisita stayed with him at his, at his bedside the whole way through. And 
he died on Holy Saturday, and the priest that attended him told Luisita, I have never been in the presence of a man more prepared to meet his God than your husband. Now we look back, if she was grieving, she was, she was lost. She, she put herself into keeping the hospital going and keeping the, the orphanage, but her cared for and the children well cared for, but her heart was broken. She was in love and she was a widow at the age of 29. It was like four or five years after he died, she felt that she had the hospital and the orphanage in good administration. Lay people were, and it was stable. She left and entered the cloister of Santa Teresa in Guadalajara. That's where she had wanted to enter before the marriage, and she felt that our Lord had now freed her to follow her true vocation. When she was in the cloister, she was happy. She loved it. She loved the sisters. She loved their schedules. She loved their way of life. And she kept hearing the children's voices. She kept thinking of the dying. And it was the bishop who was the first one who came back to her and said, we're losing. That was the first time. He did it twice. But he said, we are losing the hospital without you. We're losing the orphanage without you. Would you consider coming back? I will send a priest to direct a retreat for you to pray. And she said, I will most happily take the priest, but it's not necessary. I want to obey you. And it corresponds with the movements of my heart. So she left. And women kept coming to help her, and they would work with her during the day. And then at night, they would go back to the some house, her house, I presume, and they would help with the children's mending. They would iron the children's clothes, and mend them, and get them ready for the next day. And they loved to be with her because she would speak to them about God. And their hearts would burn. And they, they wanted to be near her. They wanted to help her. This was the time of the persecution in Mexico. The, the government went in waves of persecuting Catholics. And it was starting to rise again. It was the second rise. And the bishop got nervous because these women were starting to look like nuns, starting to, like, this is, this is not tolerated. It was a federal offense to take vows. It was a federal offense for a priest to celebrate mass. This is dangerous. And these women were starting to smell and act like nuns, and he didn't, he didn't want more trouble. So he asked Luisita to go join a community that was already established, the Sister Servants of the Blessed Sacrament. Mother had no draw to them, no inclination, but she was obedient. She was with the Sister Servants of the Blessed Sacrament for three years. And the bishop came to her and said, I am losing the orphanage and I'm losing the hospital and we can't afford to lose it. Would you return? So on um, February 2nd, 1921, those women were given 
the permission to begin living the life of Carmel. Now it had to be very humble because of the poverty and it had to be very secret because of the persecution. But it was a very joyful, full, enthusiastic, fervent gathering of the sisters as they began uh, wearing the Carmelite habit and observing the traditions that she had learned in the, in the Carmel. And the Carmelite nuns were very close to her and they gave her anything she needed and provided and she provided for them and it's still to this day is a very close relationship. We had five sisters imprisoned. We had no sister violated, physically harmed, no sister martyred. The sisters were protected, but mother felt so responsible. Mother Luisita took two sisters and boarded a train and went to a foreign country she had no clue. There's no telegrams. There's, she had no clue if she would be received. And yet the archbishop, the bishop then of Los Angeles was Cantwell. And he understood the plight and the suffering of the Mexican people. And he welcomed her with open arms. How oh, beautiful. That was 1927. It's so beautiful. And, and so now both communities of sisters are still in existence, right? And, and very and very close. And, and, and then when the year that we came, we came in June of 27, the Carmel where mother had entered came in the following September or October of the same year. They settled in the Archdiocese of San Francisco. Cristo Rey, viva. Oh, beautiful. Rey. Within the Carmelite family, you know, speaking about nuns versus sisters, what's what is the role of, of sisters within the Carmelite within the Carmelite family? When you say Carmelite, you think of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is the place where you think of enclosed garden, the place of encounter. Every spirituality has a message, a message of the gospel, a, a, a dimension of reflecting the heart of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Everybody has, every every order does. Uh, von Balthasar uh, says everybody has something to give, but it, von Balthasar is a, was a Jesuit theologian. He's not a Carmelite, so he's not biased, okay? But he <laughs> says Carmel has the most fundamental gift to speak. Because Carmel is the is the order of encounter, the order of the presence of God. Carmel speaks the word that every human being is made for communion with God. That every human being is capable of hearing God, of, of communicating with God, of coming to know the heart of God. So that's the fundamental word of Carmel, whether we're friars or sisters or nuns, is to invite people to know God. Yeah. To be in communion with them. Sisters do it primarily 
by the way we live that's visible. We're seen. The way we word it in our community is that we exist to stand in the presence of the living God and with Mary to make known, to make visible, to make palpable the love of the heart of Jesus. And how do we do it? First and foremost, by the way we live. Mm -hmm. That our sisters really are real sisters to one another. Then it overflows. And then we take it to the child. We're in education. And every one of our children who graduates from our school, we have education from preschool all the way through high school. Our students, our graduates, should be very at home in prayer with God. We accompany our elders the same gift that Mother Luisita had in accompanying her husband was the seedbed for our companionship now for our elders and their families and leading them in this process as a way of encountering God. And then our mother house is the retreat house where people can come away and rest in the heart of God. So ours is, is the visible, visible manifestation of what the, our Carmelite nuns, who are our sisters, but they in their, they are the engines. They're the firehouse that enables us to make it visible. We are, there's an interdependence on all three of the, of the um, branches of the order for us to be full. We, all, we need all three. Mm-hmm. Sister, just a beautiful uh, witness that you give to the church as sisters, the, the Carmelite sisters of the most sacred heart. Could you tell us just a little bit about uh, what, what does a typical day in the life of a, of a sister look like? So our daily life begins bright and dark. We, we do have the same uh, tradition as most of the Carmels do, and that's a sister rings the bell and sings to us, calling us to praise God. And uh, we have a quiet prayer in the morning, and then we chant morning prayer and have liturgy together and breakfast. Usually breakfast, usually, usually is in silence unless it's a great feast day. We have lots of great feast days. We even make up sometimes, uh, cause for rejoicing. And then we go up to our apostolic services, to the classroom, uh, to elder care, to the retreat house, to whatever God has assigned us to. We gather again at noon for to pray our examine and lunch together and um, go back is there's a rhythm there. And then in the evening, we have a holy hour together. Most days, some days we have adoration all afternoon and sisters take different times for prayer. But very often we have a holy hour together and pray evening prayer and adoration, and dinner and recreation and night prayer. So we, we live a, a life that is able to breathe, times of relaxation, times of solitude, times of recreation, times of service. We really don't, we um, see, we have different dimensions of our life, our apostolic life, our prayer life, our community, but we're always coming back to, we have one life. 
-hmm. And that one life is seeking God. So when we go to work, we expect to encounter Jesus. Right. And it's from St. Teresa's teaching, God is found amidst the pots and pans. You don't find of God course. in the pots and pans. <laughs> He's right in the midst of it. So we expect to find Jesus when we are together as sisters, when we are serving, when we are in prayer. You know, it's amazing, sister. The um, Even when I came, I came to visit with you guys, with a few of my brothers back in 2019. And I remember even there, my 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 one major impression of your life was how similar it was to the friars. Your daily schedule is very similar to ours. So it's, it's, uh, it's like kind of this, it's a beautiful sort of mirror image because, you know, we have a more apostolic life as well in comparison to the nuns, for example. What would you say to a young woman who was, or any woman who was interested in discerning uh, the Carmelite charism, but specifically um, a, a charism to be a Carmelite sister? My first word would probably be the word that Carmel speaks, and that is the most important thing you can do is draw near to him. Be convinced that you were created for something beautiful, that he called you out of nothingness for a purpose. And foster within yourself that desire to do, to be, to follow as he would have you. Because sometimes we can get into a little bit of a, like, I want God, so therefore I need to be a nun, or I need to be a sister. No, no. That there, there's, there's something more fundamental. Um, you were created for beauty and truth and goodness that only God can give. And then once we accept that, knowing the path is a little bit easier. So if you are considering a Carmelite sister, come and see. Just no, uh, I. You're you're not going to be. Um, in, nobody's going to try to grab you by the ankles. No one's going to try to get you in. We will simply share our hearts our life with you and then give you the space to know if it resonates in your heart. Uh, web pages, websites are really safe places to start to come mm -hmm. and see. And if it um, is, if you feel the movement, if you feel your heart going, ah, you think about it the next day, you think about it when you're at your next date, you think about it when you're supposed to be studying, um, when you're at work, but it keeps coming back. Don't, don't, don't delay it. Don't put it off. Yeah, beautiful advice. One final question, sister, that I, I'd love to, we, we, we'd like to get everyone's answer on this, but what's, what's one work of required Carmelite reading that you would recommend? Elizabeth of the Trinity is my all-time favorite. Elizabeth of the Trinity came looking for me before I even knew she existed. Whenever I was, when I was a passionate novice, I was going to jump off the cliff or you know, jump out the window like, this is enough, I don't want to do this anymore. I'd run across a holy card of Elizabeth of the Trinity. And she would ground me again. And then two years later, I'd be in the same, like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. Elizabeth of the Trinity would show up. And so anything that she says, listen to Elizabeth. <laughs>
Very sound advice. Sister Regina Marie, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your life with us. And we're so grateful and, and we'll be, uh, of course, praying for you and all of the Carmelite sisters and everyone listening. We invite you to pray for this beautiful community of sisters out in Los Angeles. Thank you so much, sister. God bless thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll be praying for you. Hey everyone, Brother Pier Giorgio here. Thanks for checking out this episode of CarmelCast. If you want to hear more of us, don't forget to click subscribe. Also, be sure to click like if you enjoyed this episode, and maybe even leave us a comment. We post discussion questions down below to get the conversation going. Want more information on Carmelite spirituality and the Discalced Carmelite Saints? Then you'll want to check out our website, www.icspublications.org. There's a link in the description of this episode. From here, you can see all our current promotions and access our complete catalog for the writings of St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, and St. Edith Stein. If you want to stay up to date on all our promotions and new titles, then be sure to add your email to our email list. There's no better way to stay up to date on the latest Carmelite publications. Thanks for joining us, and may God bless you.